Hello friends, thanks for coming back and checking out Earmarks. This is episode 2, we're going to talk about a novel called Waystation by Clifford D. Simak. Waystation was written by Clifford D. Simak, originally published in 1963. However, it was not originally published as a book titled Waystation. It was, in fact, published in two parts in Galaxy Magazine under the title Here Gather the Stars, which I think is a really great title, and it's very good for this book, given the story. It's less catchy and sort of attention-grabby than Waystation, which Waystation is like an intriguing title, and you see that, like, oh, I, I can get that, since... Here Gather the Stars was published in Galaxy Magazine under two parts. Naturally, I had to pick up the entire 1963 run, all six issues, because obviously. These issues include some of the coolest science fiction cover art that you'll ever see. You can find that on Instagram. I've posted most of these issues on my Instagram. But we're only going to be talking about two of these issues, and that is the August and June of 1963. These are the two issues that Here Gather the Stars were printed, along with a lot of other great short stories, novellas, and novelettes. Galaxy was a great magazine, and I am sad that it was before my time. As for my copy of Waystation proper, I've got an Easton Press edition because if you can't tell, I love this novel. Waystation was most recently published in English in 2015 that was its last printing so you know hasn't been too long uh seven years or so as of recording that being said it's an utter travesty this book is delightful uh so let's get into the spoiler free review section here real fast Waystation is a quiet and contemplative novel on loneliness and what it means to be a human living on earth it follows enoch wallace who is the sole operator of an intergalactic travel station uh, the stationed here on Earth. Simak is the type of author who genuinely believes in the goodness of human nature and writes through a lens of compassion and generosity. So the entire novel is permeated with this unrelenting optimism, especially in the small details. This is a book for people who really like the big questions that sci-fi tends to ask, uh, but need a break from the humbling and hopeless and and generally dire lens that those questions often get asked through. Waystation does not shy away from those big questions, including, you know, looking directly at some of them like ableism and domestic abuse, or like I said before, what it means to be human, but it also has some more esoteric questions that it asks, like several political allegories, and it even talks about the idea of virtual reality, which is amazing. It does all of this while maintaining the opinion throughout the, throughout the novel that Humanity is ultimately good and worthwhile. It's a classic of science fiction, and in my opinion, this novel deserves its place on the same shelf as things like Slaughterhouse-Five and To Kill a Mockingbird. Absolute classic, and it has gone down and will continue to go down in the annals of history as such. Read it. It is wholesome. It is delightful, if not often forgotten and overlooked. Now let's get into the spoiler review. Here there be spoilers. Turn back now if you want to read this book first. Okay, spoilers. This book 
is a story about the loneliness and solitude of Enoch Wallace as he struggles with this relationship, uh, trying to serve the galaxy and Earth and humanity and non-humanity all at the same time. And he struggles with these, this entire identity and with his loneliness and solitude. Uh, to reiterate, this is a great book. Again, maybe no surprise because it's in an episode like this, but it stands up to inspection and rereading extremely well. And it's, it's full of the sort of nuance and criticism and subtlety that firmly place it in the conversation of science fiction classics. Enoch carries with him this specific note of introspection that we don't often see in this genre. Uh, we see a lot of large questions being asked of the universe and of the reader and of the characters, but rarely are those questions asked by the character themselves. And this book is full of that. It's basically an entire book about that. Enoch looks inside himself often and without reservation. There are no hidden dark corners of his psyche that he refuses to look directly at. He is, he's not ashamed or closed-mouthed about the war that he participated in, his role, and how it affected him. Enoch Wallace is a good person. And, and Simic does, does an utterly wonderful job of leading us to that conclusion without holding our hand or without outright saying it throughout the book. Uh, he doesn't come out and say like, oh, Enoch Wallace was a good person who does this thing. No, he doesn't show Enoch saving the cat. Like it, it, he doesn't do any of that. He just writes Enoch's actions and thoughts in such a way as to outline the shape of the good naturedness of Enoch Wallace throughout the length of this novel. We get to see some some really great science fiction tech and ideas on display in this novel, like you might expect from a sci-fi novel. There's, you know, some alien technology, there's teleportation. Enoch has maybe my dream VR setup where it's a huge room in his basement and he goes down and the entire space is, is transformed for him down to like scent and the movement of wind and stuff. He, he's effectively teleported to this other environment, but he's not, it's, it's just a reprojection simulation in his basement, like, like, like a full decade before Star Trek did the holodeck even to the point where he's using his real rifle with real bullets and the walls are coated in such a way that they basically just absorb the bullets that he shoots. It's full immersive simulation and it's wonderful. And I love the fact that this book does that without knowing that virtual reality is a term like that is before this, but it takes this amazing simulation and spends a full like chapter on that. And then, Enoch thinking about that and wondering like how how has this changed him he he gets teleported every day to a new place to hunt whatever he wants or do whatever he wants and like how has that actually affected him as a person I love that this book is just like yes great idea instead of it just being fun how does it actually affect the person who partakes in this thing all the time I love that uh it also portrays teleportation in my favorite way it definitely is not an uncommon way to, to handle teleportation, but it may have been among the first ones to do it, where the body's effectively transferred to a new location via like a data transfer, right? You like digitize every cell and interaction in your body and transmit the data, and then that body is rebuilt on another location, and the current body that was, you know, left behind 
is disposed of. That is my favorite way of doing teleportation. In fact, it's the way that a lot of my novel is written around. But it is kind of the only teleportation method that makes any sense to me. Because how, how else could that possibly work, right? And this book may have been among the first ones to explore that methodology. Um, it also does a lot of really interesting things with the sci-fi tech that it shows on display because Enoch is an 18th century man. He was born and fought in the civil war. Uh, he like the reader has no freaking idea what most of the things that he interacts with or most of the gifts from other aliens, etc., are or how they work. And that has, is a little bit of a plot point, but also it's portrayed just kind of matter of factly. Some of my favorite scenes in this novel are just used to show different aspects and sides of Enoch Wallace. And they're all good sides. We don't get to see any like bad sides to Enoch Wallace throughout the length of this novel. For example, when we first meet Lucy, who is a deaf and mute girl who is in her early 20s, I believe. It's clear from the get-go that Lucy and Enoch have this proper sort of platonic companionship where you might suspect that oh we're now introducing the love interest in this part of the story but that's not at all what this is this is just a friendship there's no romantic aspect to this it's not even hinted at it's just a clear and obvious platonic love between two people that have affection for each other and understanding of each other and like a, a deep relationship that's utterly not romantic it's a shining example of a healthy way for human beings to interact with each other and that is kind of a through line through this whole novel where Enoch sort of just exemplifies a healthy way of being a human <laughs> Enoch treats everyone human and non-human alike with unwavering respect and compassion so much so that it's actually a plot point in the novel itself. There's repeated attention given to a particular gravestone and its circumstances throughout the novel. Uh, and I like to think of it as Chekhov's gravestone because it's not, it's not like a red herring or anything, but it is a pretty central plot device. It plays a role in the initial hook of the novel uh, where, for example, at the end of chapter three, we get this gravestone and its inscription as a cliffhanger where Lewis, who is um, one of the tertiary characters, is investigating Enoch because he's her tale of a crazy old man who looks 35, etc. So he's in the town kind of investigating, trying to track him down and figure out what's going on. He finds these gravestones, and it's, it, you know, it's Enoch's family plot, where his mom and dad are buried, etc., which was, which was common for the era. And, and the chapter ends with, there were just names and dates. On the first stone, Amanda Wallace. On the second stone, Jedediah Wallace. And on the third stone, dot, 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 end of chapter <laughs> i love that because you're like wait third stone is that enix stone he's supposed to be really old is he immortal is he dead and this is a zombie alien like replacement we don't know it's a great little hook that really entices at least me into wondering what the heck that could have meant and then later on in the book we actually learn that the third gravestone is actually engraved with an alien language of some kind what we immediately the very next chapter uh, get the backstory, which is where a Hazer, who is a new friend, but a good friend, because Enoch is friends with every Hazer, basically, 
uh, very good friends with them, comes to the way station on his travels and dies there. Enoch is told by Galactic Central to handle it according to local customs, which he does. He stays up all night, takes the body out, and buries it in his family plot out of sheer respect and adoration for the Hazer culture and this particular individual. We're then meant to believe that the writing on this gravestone is just, you know, the Hazer's name and when he died, etc., just written in their language, right? Like you might expect to find on a human gravestone like his parents, which are right next to him. Then, even later, we find out that that body has been removed by Lewis, uh, which is very bad, and the Hazer's immediately know and immediately like it is the utmost disrespect that's a problem it's so much of a problem that it basically causes a political rift in the system and initiates the effective closure of the way station on earth a delegate from the hazer community comes out to the way station to deliver a formal protest and and inform enoch of you know what's happened and what is the consequences of that action and we get to see yet another glimpse of, of Enoch's respect where clearly this is not a pleasant uh, thing for Hazers to do. Maybe the first time they've ever done formal protests like this, it's, it's bad. So he just says, hey, we don't have to talk about it. I'll just consider this a, the formal protest accepted and, and we can move on and spare ourselves the clearly uncomfortable conversation. But then he says in, in such a event, humans were a, a find out kind of culture. So... I know you know the body's been moved because you can just tell, but please allow humanity to do what it does now and, and go and check and find out, see, you know, exactly what happened, maybe. Um, the Hazer asked to join. So Enoch and the Hazer both go out to the family plot where Enoch immediately sees the upturned grave and knows exactly who did it and about when they did it, etc. He knows he knows it was Lewis because he's been he's seen him hanging around and snooping and stuff. But the Hazer reads the inscription and is deeply moved and as such kind of leaves the door ajar, shall we say, for Enoch to write this wrong at least. Maybe can't really stop the earth station from being closed because of the protest and the, the politics and the you know, formalities of the situation, but he can write this wrong by getting this body back. And he sees via this inscription that he clearly cares and respects this culture a lot. So obviously this was moved, the body was moved erroneously and he's not just disrespecting the culture and selling off the body or whatever. Right. So the hazer leaves that kind of unspoken door jar. Then after the climax of the novel plays out, the hazer body gets returned and the group of them go to the grave and, and rebury the body and make that right. And Enoch finally transcribes the, the inscription on that gravestone out loud. And I love it's it's a really good Chekhov's gun for me because the inscription is great. It was worth the payoff the, the lead up and payoff for me. The inscription reads Here lies one from a distant star, but soil is not alien to him, for in death he belongs to the universe. And I love that inscription because it kind of weaves together the entire relationship that Enoch has had with the Hazers as they've traveled through over the decades. And if you have made it this far without reading the book, you really need to, because there's a lot of subtlety that I'm glossing over because it's, it's a deeply subtle book. But this inscription really shows like the thought 
that Clifford D. Simak put into this writing. It is not just a sci-fi story that he wrote out. He, he really has a lot to say about humanity. And most of his work, I feel like, is, you know, this being a spearhead of which, is him trying to convince his readers that humans are actually good overall. And this book does an excellent job of kind of almost subliminally convincing you of that. It's literally one of dozens of examples and scenes that color in shades of Enoch to convince us that he's a good person without ever saying so. Um, and that the people around him are good people as well, even though we get much fewer coloring scenes for them. This novel is an essay about non-toxic humanity but it still gets into the deep philosophical questions that we expect from sci-fi right we have the almost cliche you know what does it mean to be human question that is often asked in sci-fi in general and it's welcome if not common but it also gets to a lot more esoteric points including a metaphor about how governments and politicians should all have term limits for example in chapter 30, right after Enoch gets out of the absolutely dope VR simulation time, uh, he has a realization and dilemma within himself about his ability to be this representative of Earth to the galactic co-fraternity. He has lived so long isolated and unaging in this station, being almost entirely separated from the human race, except for a few choice friends and, and contacts throughout the decades, that he feels like he no longer can be a representative for the human race. He thinks to himself, he's a man of the 19th century, and being as such, how could he possibly represent the 20th? How much does the human character change with each generation and with each lifetime? Which is an incredibly insightful thought process, which I think points to the fact that he is actually a good representative for Earth. It's the same as that old saying, uh, the right person to be king doesn't want to wear the crown. And that's kind of what we see in Enoch, where he doesn't want to be a representative of He doesn't think he's a good one. He doesn't think he fits the bill. There's better, more intelligent people that will better represent the earth. He's too far disconnected. And that point is used in these chapters, the subsequent chapters, as a thinly veiled allegory for term limits in government. Um, it is not that subtle, honestly, and you probably picked up on it if you read this book. But it's how the leadership of this country and often the world are just too wealthy, spent too long separated from, you know, the common folk and are just too out of touch to be good representatives for the citizens. Lastly, towards the end of the novel, at the end of chapter 33, in fact, we get yet another wonderful insight into human nature through the lens of Enoch Wallace good person TM. Lucy's dad, Hank. Uh, who is not a very good person, all told, is seen after the climax running down the hill screaming, fleeing from the light of the talisman, which Lucy has activated, which is um, meant to bring peace and stability and clarity to everything in the universe, basically. Enoch remarks uh, to Lewis and Winslow and Ulysses, he says, I'm sorry that we frightened him, no man should be afraid of this, kind of gesturing it at Lucy and the talisman. And Winslow says, 
It's him he's afraid of. That man lives with a terror inside him. And Enoch thinks to himself and us, the reader, quote, that's the way with man. He had always been that way. He had carried terror with him. And the thing that he was afraid of had always been himself, which is uh, a particularly kind way of stating one of the natures of abuse. And Hank personified that. But it also further highlights Enoch's separation from society. This highlight is only apparent to the reader and only in retrospect of the novel. Now that we're at the end, we see throughout the novel that Enoch is not afraid of the unknown. He comes right up to Ulysses. He faces the new station appointment head on. He goes to war. He talks about war. He defends Lucy. He doesn't shy away from things that need to be addressed or things that he's doing. He's just unafraid, which further sets him apart from a large portion of human nature. But I think that that is one of the many aspects of Enoch Wallace that we can all strive to emulate. Now, that being said, I do have some criticisms for this novel. They're short and simple, so I won't spend much time on them. Firstly, this novel can switch from a matter-of-fact style of prose uh, and structure to a really poetic and metaphorical style, often and rapidly, with very little transition. Um, it can be somewhat disorienting if you're not ready for that sort of thing, but ultimately I, th I still think it is cohesive. It's just, you know, maybe a little speed bumpy sometimes. Secondly, the tertiary characters, uh, Winslow and Lewis and Lucy, just accept alien life, like basically with no hesitation. Granted, they were kind of primed on it for a long time, many years, in fact, as being friends with Enoch. Um, you know, he's given Winslow like really exotic woods that no one else can identify. And Lewis has been kind of investigating Enoch and found the house untouchable, undamageable and really strange and etc. So, you know, they, they have been a little bit primed. But when they're faced like full on in the face with this, with Ulysses and Lucy with the talisman, etc., of just aliens, they basically never mention it at all. It's a little unrealistic, but, you know, it's not that bad. So in summary, Waste Station is an absolutely wonderful novel uh, and has quite a lot to say about humanity and human nature that I obviously can't cover here in any kind of timely fashion. You've made it to the end of this episode without reading this novel. I hope the spoilers weren't too much to prevent you from picking this novel up because it truly is a classic of science fiction and you should read it. Thank you guys for listening to this show all the way to the end. If you liked it, tell your friends about it. Subscribe, comment, rate. You know, you get how to do all the things. Um, there is a video version of this podcast if you want to see the covers and the magazines and stuff that I talked about. It's on YouTube at youtube.com slash at earmarks. You can find me there. It'll also be linked in the description and notes of this podcast episode. Make sure you share it. Tell all your friends. If you have any other, you know, out of print novels that you think I should check out and maybe include in this episode, let me know. You can do that via email, which is earmarks at punk.dev. Thanks again, everyone. Be kind to yourself.